Good morning, church. I love you, and I'm so thankful for you. Thank you for being part of our worship assembly this morning, whether you're here in person or you're watching online. Not only do I love you, but the other people here love you as well. This church family loves you and appreciates you. I don't know if this is a common experience with other spouses, what I'm about to tell you. I'm assuming that it probably is, but I've never had this conversation with other husbands. But I assume, other husbands, that you've experienced something similar to this. But occasionally, Holly will point to something. Usually, it's something that's in a very prominent place in our home, maybe on the island in our kitchen or sometimes maybe on the floor in, in a room, but, but something in a prominent place, and she'll point to it, and I'll, I'll see it, and I'll think, I've, I've never seen that thing, whatever that thing is in my entire life. I don't know what this thing is or why you're pointing to it, and she will say something along the lines of, are you ever going to do something with that? Yes, you've heard, you've, you've heard something similar in your house, and, and I, I've been married long enough to know that when she says that, when she asks that question, it means that she's seen this thing for a very long time, and she's been very aware of it, and she's been waiting patiently for hours, but probably more like days or weeks, maybe even months, for me to also notice this thing and do something with this thing. In other words, I've become oblivious to it, but it's obvious to her, so it's time for a wake-up call, right? And and that's what we're talking about in our series right now, and we need a wake-up call when we become oblivious to the things that ought to be obvious, right? We we need a wake-up call when we've become oblivious to the things that ought to be obvious. Now, I want us to stop and ask ourselves, but it's hard to even ask ourselves that question. Are there things to which you have become oblivious? Because the challenge there is, if you're oblivious to them, you don't know that you're oblivious to them. You, you don't see them. You don't perceive that, oh, I, I have eyes, but I don't really see. I have ears, but I, I'm not really hearing. I've become oblivious to something that, to God, is obvious. And so God is trying to get our attention, asking us, are you ever going to do something about this? Are you ever going to see it? Are you ever going to make the changes that you need to make? Are you ever going to wake up and see that you're making a mistake and that you need to make a change? So we've been talking about how God has done this throughout history, how he has done this with his people, how he's given them a wake-up call. We've talked some about the prophets in the 8th century. We talked about Amos and Hosea, but there's also Micah and Isaiah. So in the 8th century, God sent these prophets to give Israel a wake-up call, to say, you've become oblivious to your idolatry and to your injustice, but they didn't wake up. And because they didn't wake up, in about 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the kingdom of Assyria. So Assyria destroyed the, the northern kingdom of Israel and carried her people off into exile. Heartbreaking. But the people in the southern kingdom of Judah thought, that'll never happen to us. We, We will never make those kinds of mistakes. But God sent prophets to them as well. In the 6th and 7th century, God sent 
prophets to them like Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Ezekiel to tell them, wake up. You're oblivious to the things that, you ought, that, that ought to be obvious. You're oblivious to these things and you need to wake up or the same thing is going to happen to you that happened to your sister Israel. But again, the people of Judah did not wake up. So in 587 BC, one of the most devastating and heartbreaking things in Israel's history happened. Jerusalem was destroyed and her people were deported to Babylon. The temple of God, the sign and symbol of God's presence, God's house where God dwelt with his people was in ruins. And a Almost 50 years passed, about 49 years passed, and in 538 BC, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, a descendant of King David and Joshua, the high priest, they led the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to begin to put the pieces together, to begin to rebuild what had been destroyed. And they, they got as far as laying the foundation of the temple but then the people who lived in the area, the people that lived in the land, the people that would later become the Samaritan people, they began to discourage them. We read this in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So they just stopped. They laid the foundation of the temple and then they just stopped. They got scared and they got discouraged. And so for a very long time, they did Nothing. Until August 29th, 520 BC. So the temple has been in ruins for 67 years. The exiles have been back in Jerusalem for about 18 years, but they've not rebuilt the temple. So for 18 years, they've just waited. They've been discouraged, they've been afraid, and they've just sort of been living with the rubble. And after 18 years, you know what happens? Same thing that happens with that thing on the island in your kitchen. <laughs> Same thing that happens with, with a lot of things. You just kind of become oblivious to it. And you just become comfortable with it. And you don't even realize we need to make a change. It isn't okay for us to continue living this way. So God sends Haggai to give the people of Jerusalem a wake-up call. So if you have your Bible, Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2, Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, most of the people, of course, were fairly poor. These are, these are refugees. These are exiles who have come back to Jerusalem, but probably some of them had some money, and obviously some of them were building some paneled houses, were building some pretty nice places to live, and they were just focused on their own houses. And they had become oblivious to the fact that God's house was still lying in ruins, and they weren't doing anything to change it. Their misplaced priorities were obvious to God, right? God said, this, is, this should be obvious to you that your priorities are not what they ought to be. You're really concerned about rebuilding your own houses. 
but you have no concern for the house of God. You have no concern for rebuilding the temple, which is why you came back in the first place. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. You've sown, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This year, our theme has been reflect and renew. And that's what Haggai is saying, isn't it? Reflect, consider your ways. That's what God is saying to the people of Jerusalem. Consider your ways. Consider your circumstances. You came back. You came back to Jerusalem. You came back to Judah. You came back to the place of your forefathers. You came back to your homeland. And this ought to be a time of rejoicing. This ought to be a time of renewal. But it's not. And you're still hungry. And you're still poor. And your circumstances are still not good. I'm not blessing you yet. And why? Why are your circumstances what they are? Maybe it's because of what you're doing, the choices that you're making, your misplaced priorities. Now, our circumstances aren't always an indication of whether or not we're doing what we ought to be doing, but sometimes they are, aren't they? Sometimes they are. Sometimes our circumstances are an indication that maybe we're not making the choices that we ought to be making. And sometimes God is trying to wake us up and say, do you, do you see the, the situation that you're in? Do you see the circumstances you're in? You, you see what's happening? Consider your ways. Reflect on your life. Look at your priorities. Are your priorities what they ought to be? It's really easy to just kind of coast through life and become oblivious to the fact that our priorities are all mixed up. We're putting last things first. We're chasing the things that we ought not to be chasing. We're pursuing the things that aren't that important. And the things that are important, the things that we ought to be pursuing, what we ought to be seeking first, has fallen by the wayside. And because of that, sometimes our circumstances have become what they are, and maybe, maybe, maybe those circumstances ought to cause us to say, am, am I contributing to this? Are my, are my situations and my circumstances what they are because my priorities are not what they ought to be? God says, verse 8, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. What is it that God wanted? God wanted his presence to be their priority, didn't he? He wanted his presence to be their priority. He wanted his glory and his name and his reputation to be their priority. He wanted them to, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Be hungry and thirsty for God's presence and God's justice. For God to dwell in your midst. What an honor. 
What an honor that out of all the people in the world, God told Israel, I want to hang out with you. I want to be in your presence. I want my house to be in your land. I want to be with you. And then they get back and it's time to rebuild and it's time for God's presence and the symbol and sign of God's presence and God's name and God's rule and God's reign to be with them. And they said, that's all right. We've got other things to take care of. We've got other priorities. I need to busy myself with my own work, with my own house, with my own stuff. I mean, do we see how relevant this is to us? God doesn't live in a house made with hands, but he does live in you. God wants to dwell in you. We collectively are the temple of God where his spirit dwells. He says, I want to live in you. I want you to be my temple. I want to rule and reign through you and in you and with you. And we say, that's all right. I've got other things to take care of. I'm busy with other things. I, I've got places to be. I've got people to see. I've got things to do. I'm too busy to prioritize the kingdom of God. And we become just like the people of Haggai's day. And our misplaced priorities are obvious to God, but we become oblivious to them. And we don't even see how mixed up our priorities are and how we're chasing and pursuing and seeking other things and the priority that we ought to have. The kingdom of God has fallen by the wayside. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Make his kingdom, his name, his reputation, his presence, his rule, make that your priority. Seek that above everything else. The kingdom of God is so valuable. Jesus says, it's like somebody that's walking in a field and they find a treasure. And they're like, what? This treasure is worth more than everything I have. And they go sell everything that they have so that they can buy the field and have that treasure. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And if you see it and you recognize the value of it, you say, nothing else that I have even begins to compare with this. But how often do we, the people that, that claim to be part of the kingdom and have received the kingdom and are following the king, we busy ourselves with our own house while the house of God is in ruins. Verse 10. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God says, I'm trying to wake you up, just like I tried to wake up your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers. I'm withholding all of these blessings that I, I want to give to you, but I'm, I'm not giving them to you yet because your priorities are still so mixed up. But you're oblivious to it. And you've got to wake up and realize what you're seeking and what you're not. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, that's the governor, descendant of King David, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Those are good words, aren't they? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They woke up, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Amen. That's good, isn't it? They woke up, and they realized, we've got to make a change. Then Haggai, verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the, year, in the second year of Darius the king. They finally woke up and started doing what they were supposed to do. And I would, I'd kind of like to end the sermon right there. Number one, we'd get out early and you would like that. But, but, but Haggai doesn't end there. There's one more chapter and, and I, I want to dive into chapter two a little bit as well because it's one thing to realize, hey, I need to get busy and I need to work. There are things that need to change and there are things I need to do and I've been... I've been lazy and I've been apathetic and my priorities haven't been what they were supposed to be. But we have other struggles, don't we? And it doesn't take very long after they start rebuilding this temple, they get discouraged again. Because they start looking at what they're building and they're like, oh, well, this isn't, this isn't like the temple used to be. And this is kind of feeble and meager this really isn't an impressive temple at all. It's kind of a shack. It's kind of a dump. And I don't know that this is even really worth it. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? There may have been a few older folks. How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? And you've probably felt that way too, haven't you? You've, you've kind of been apathetic and you've kind of been lazy and your priorities aren't what they're supposed to be and then you, you read something or you heard something or you got excited about something and you said, I need to get busy, I need to get to work, I need to do something for the Lord, I need to prioritize the kingdom of God and you got busy and you started doing stuff and then you got discouraged because you thought, my efforts are kind of meager. What do I have to offer to the Lord? What could I really do? And is this really important? And is this really making a difference? And should I really keep doing it? And what difference would it make if I just stop? Just forget it. It's just too much. I, I'm too little. This job is too big. You ever been there? And that's exactly how they're feeling about their efforts. Verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. That's a good word, isn't it? Work because I'm with you. This isn't just your efforts. It may seem meager to you. It may seem little in your eyes. What you're doing may seem unimpressive and unimportant, but I'm with you. And that's something to which we become oblivious as well, isn't it? We become oblivious to the fact that God is with us. God is in us. God is partnering with us, 
cooperating with us. We are cooperating with him and partnering with him. And what we do, we don't do alone. We do with God. And God could take what seems meager and insignificant to you, and he can do amazing things with it. In fact, God will go on to tell the people through Agai, this temple, this temple that you're building right now that seems so small and seems so insignificant, its glory is going to surpass the former temple. And I'm going to shake all the nations of the world and their wealth is going to come into this temple. And I'm going to do things now that you can't even imagine. This glory of this temple is going to surpass the first But it's a reminder to us too, isn't it? That God can take our meager little offering, our meager little talents, the the little things that we do and we think, what difference does that make? I called somebody this week and I encouraged them. I taught this Bible class. I I wrote a note to somebody. I I cooked a meal for someone. But, But really, in the grand scheme of things, does that really make a difference? More than you can possibly imagine. If you're doing it in partnership with the Spirit of God, that little thing that you do in His name is making more of a difference than you could possibly imagine. Don't become oblivious to the fact that God is with you and working with you. Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment... And then touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food. Does it become holy? The priest answered and said no. So if if the priest takes holy food, sacrificed food, sanctified food, and puts it in his clothes, his clothes become holy, sanctified. But if he takes those clothes and touches some other piece of food with the clothes, that holiness doesn't continue to transfer. So he asked the, the priest... Is this how it works? And the priest, of course, said no. Then, verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Here's something else we become oblivious to. We become oblivious to the fact that our sin infects everything. That it's a whole lot easier for our uncleanness to transfer than it is for holiness to transfer. And that when we have sin that we haven't repented of, when we haven't made the changes that we need to make, if we just keep working and we say, well, I'm going I'm to work even harder for the Lord. I'm going to do all of these things. It's not like these good efforts that we do make up for the bad things that we did. It just continues to affect the good things that we did. And so God says to these people, because you haven't repented of your sins, you're building the temple, but your sins are affecting it. Everything is defiled because of your sin. And again, that's something to which we become oblivious, something that's obvious to God, but we are oblivious to. That when we're sinning, and then we try to offer something to God, we defile what we're offering. 
That's what God had been trying to wake this people up to for centuries. And it might be that he's trying to wake us up to that as well. So kind of to recap so far, Haggai woke people up to, number one, he woke people up to the consequences of prioritizing their own house over God's house. Number two, he woke people up to the powerful things God can do with their seemingly insignificant efforts. And finally, Haggai woke people up to the ways sin defiles every aspect of a person's work. I want us to kind of think about those those wake-up calls that are in this short little book, two chapters, and just ask ourselves, is it possible that I've become oblivious to these things? Is it possible that I need a wake-up call because I'm oblivious to the fact that I'm prioritizing my own house? over God's house. I'm prioritizing my family over the family of God. I'm prioritizing my kingdom or a worldly kingdom over the kingdom of God. Is it possible that I need a wake-up call in that area? Or is it possible that I am working for God and I'm doing things for God, but that I'm becoming discouraged because I'm forgetting that I'm working with him? And it's not my power or my strength that makes this work. It's his. And that when I'm partnered with God and I'm working through the Spirit of God, that he can do amazing things through my efforts that would otherwise be insignificant and inconsequential. Is it possible that you need a wake-up call in that area? Or is it possible that you are working for God, but you have some sin that you haven't repented of? And your sin is defiling your work. Your good works will not erase your sin. Only the atoning sacrifice that God offers on your behalf can do that. Only he can forgive your sin. And if you continue to work for him and continue to have sin that you haven't repented of, that you haven't changed, then your sin is defiling your sacrifice. It's defiling everything that you do with your hands. But as with all of the the prophets, God has so much hope and good news even for the people of Haggai's day. And so I want us to look as we close to Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 20. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 20. This book ends with sort of a mysterious promise. It says in chapter 2 and verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judah. Again, remember, descendant of King David. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. God tells Zerubbabel through Haggai, I'm going to shake all the nations of the world. I'm going to destroy all of them. All of the worldly kingdoms, all of their empires, all of their military, all of their strength, all of their power, they, they, seem, they seem mighty, they seem indestructible, but I'm going to destroy all of them. I'm going to bring all of them down. See, again, here's something to which we become oblivious. We become oblivious to the fragility of the nations, don't we? 
We become oblivious to the fact that nations and kingdoms that seem so strong and so powerful and so big, they are incredibly fragile to God. It's obvious to him how fragile these kingdoms are. All of these nations are incredibly fragile. But we think they're so strong and so powerful, we put our trust in them or we fear them. And God says, I'm going to destroy all of them. They're all coming down. They're, they're, all, they're all not going to last. But here's what he's going to do. Verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What does, what does he mean by that? I mean, that's an amazing promise, isn't it? He says, I'm going I'm to tear down all the kingdoms of the world, and I'm going to make you my signet ring. I'm going to make you my chosen one. I'm going to make you the symbol of my power and my rule and my reign and my authority. Now, that's a pretty amazing promise when you consider their circumstances and their situation. They're living in a destroyed city. They're a bunch of refugees and exiles in this little nothing place. And God says, I'm going to tear down all the kingdoms of the world and I'm going to make you, you, the place and the, the symbol and the sign of my rule and my reign. My kingdom is coming through you. Now we might look at this and say, Zerubbabel? Who is Zerubbabel? Why, sh why should we even care about this person? Well, I don't know that it was through Zerubbabel specifically, but his great-great-great-great-great-grandson was named Jesus, and he was born in Bethlehem, and he is the signet ring of God. And through Zerubbabel's descendant, through David's descendant, Jesus, God is going to tear down every kingdom of the world, and his kingdom is the only one that will last. Again, we become oblivious to the fact that the kingdoms around us are incredibly fragile, but there's one kingdom that will last forever. There is one king who will rule forever. There is one king who is truly God's signet ring. And he will live and reign forever. Put your trust in him. Pursue his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. So this, we could end with this. Wake up. Wake up and prioritize the kingdom of God. Because it's the only one that cannot be shaken. Not only is it the only kingdom that cannot be shaken, it's the only thing that cannot be shaken. Some of you know all too well how your health can be shaken, how your career can be shaken, how your academics or your athletics or anything else that you prioritize and pursue can be shaken. But the kingdom of God cannot be shaken it is here to stay. It will last forever. Seek first his kingdom. Prioritize his house over yours. Wake up and prioritize the kingdom of God. Maybe someone here this morning, you're ready to, to declare your allegiance and your loyalty to the king and to his kingdom. To pledge yourself to Jesus. And, and when you do, when you, when you pledge yourself to King Jesus, when you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he forgives all of your sins. And he equips you 
and indwells you with his Holy Spirit so that the work you do is holy to the Lord. Every effort that you do with your hands is no longer defiled. Every effort that you do with your hands and you do in the name of the Lord because of the forgiveness that he's given you and the presence of his Holy Spirit is holy to the Lord and it's significant. And the things that you do in the name of the Lord actually make a difference, an eternal difference because you are partnered with him. Maybe you need to make that decision for the first time or recommit yourself to God and to his kingdom. Or maybe you're just overwhelmed because the things around you are being shaken and you need the prayers and the encouragement of your brothers and sisters. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, our shepherds would love to pray with you in the prayer room after service or you could come forward. As together we stand and sing this song.